The modern UFO era began in 1947 when Kenneth Arnold reported nine shiny objects that skipped like saucers flying through the air. But this wasn't the first UFO sighting. Before Roswell, before flying saucers, in times of old, people witnessed strange things in the sky. Let's go back in time for Episode 4, A Few Classics. It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along as I examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. Follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. Before we delve into this week's case, it's time for... Strange Events, Bizarre Facts, The Unbelievable Revealed, This is the mind boggle of the week. Congressional insider trading? In 2012, President Obama signed the Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge or Stock Act into law. It was successful until April 2013 when it was amended by Congress. Yes, you heard that right. Congress amended a law that was preventing Congress from doing bad stuff. Most people go to jail for insider trading, but not Congress. Why is Congress allowed to change laws that prevent them from doing bad things? Why are they allowed to give themselves pay raises? How is it that the shining beacon of democracy that stands for freedom and equality suffers from systematic corruption at every level of government? It boggles the mind. And now it's time for the show. First, let's look at a story from America. June 30th, 1800, William Dunbar saw a strange object and later told his good friend, Vice President at the time, Thomas Jefferson. Some reports claim Jefferson saw the UFO, but he didn't. This letter describes what Mr. Dunbar saw communicated by Vice President Jefferson. A phenomenon was seen to pass Baton Rouge on the night of the 5th April, 1800, of which the following is the best description I have been able to obtain. It was first seen in the southwest and moved so rapidly, passing over the heads of the spectators, as to disappear in the northeast about a quarter of a minute. It appeared to be the size of a large house, 70 or 80 feet long, and of a form nearly resembling figure 5 in plate 4. It appeared to be about 200 yards above the surface of the earth, wholly luminous, but not emitting sparks, of a color resembling the sun near the horizon in a cold, frosty evening, which may be called a crimson red. When passing right over the heads of the spectators, the light on the surface of the earth was little short of the effect of sunbeams, though at the same time looking another way, the stars were visible, which appears to be a confirmation of the opinion formed of its moderate elevation. In passing, a considerable degree of heat was felt, but no electric sensation. Immediately after it disappeared in the northeast, a violent rushing noise was heard, as if the phenomenon was bearing down the forest before it, and in a few seconds a tremendous crash was heard similar to that of the largest piece of ordnance, 
causing a very sensible earthquake. I have been informed that search has been made in the place where the burning body fell, and that a considerable portion of the surface of the earth was found broken up, and every vegetable body burned or greatly scorched. I have not yet received answers to a number of queries I have sent on, which may perhaps bring to light more particulars. The drawing referenced in Plate 4 is lost to history. At first glance, it seems an obvious case of meteor misidentification. However, meteors travel much faster than what was reported. Also, a meteor the size reported would have caused damage on a scale noticeable even today. The most likely explanation is that the witness got the facts wrong. It is really hard to accurately describe something in the sky because you lack a frame of reference. However, the tantalizing possibility of an intelligently controlled craft remains. Let's look again at the description. It was the size of a house, 70 or 80 feet long. It appeared to be about 200 yards above the surface of the Earth, wholly luminous, not with points of light or kind of glowing, but wholly luminous and it was not emitting sparks. I interpret that as meaning sparks like you might see on a meteor. It wasn't showering sparks or having anything like that. It didn't look like it was on fire, apparently. It was just luminous, and it was a crimson red. When passing over the heads of the spectators, the light on the surface of the Earth was little short of the effect of sunbeams. Though at the same time, looking another way, the stars were visible, which appears to be a confirmation of the opinion formed of its moderate elevation. So here, I'm not 100% sure. It seems like what he's saying is that it's so bright that you couldn't see the stars where it was. On the other hand, because he says sun beams, I wonder if people reported actual beams of light. It's hard to say from the description. In any case, it's a really interesting sighting. Next up is my favorite historical sighting. In 1561, Nuremberg, Germany, there was a mass sighting of strange things in the sky. People saw what they described as an aerial battle. In 1561? Weird, right? The cool thing is that we have an artist's depiction of the events. Just search Nuremberg UFO. That's spelled N-U-R-E-M-B-U-R-G. Along with this picture, we have a description. In the morning of April 14, 1561, at daybreak between 4 and 5 a.m., a dreadful apparition occurred on the sun, and then this was seen in Nuremberg in the city, before the gates and in the country, by many men and women. At first there appeared in the middle of the sun two blood-red semicircular arcs, just like the moon in its last quarter, and in the sun, above and below and on both sides, the color was blood. There stood a round ball of partly dull, partly black ferrous color. Likewise, there stood on both sides, and as a torus about the sun, such blood-red ones and other balls in large number, about three in a line and four in a square, also some alone. In between these globes, there were visible a few blood-red crosses, between which there were blood-red strips, becoming thicker to the rear and in the front malleable like the rods of reed grass, which were intermingled among them two big rods, one on the right, the other on the left, 
and within the small and big rods there were three, also four and more globes. These all started to fight among themselves, so that the globes, which were first in the sun, flew out to the ones standing on both sides. Thereafter, the globes standing outside the sun, in the small and large rods, flew into the sun. Besides, the globes flew back and forth among themselves and fought vehemently with each other for over an hour. And when the conflict in and again out of the sun was most intense, they became fatigued to such an extent that they all, as said above, fell from the sun down upon the earth as if they all burned, and they then wasted away on the earth with an immense smoke. After all this, there was something like a black spear, very long and thick, sighted. The shaft pointed to the east, the point pointed west. Whatever such signs mean, God alone knows. Although we have seen, shortly one after the other, many kinds of signs on the heaven, which are sent to us by the Almighty God, to bring us repentance, we still are, unfortunately, so ungrateful that we despise such high signs and miracles of God, or we speak of them with ridicule and discard them to the wind, in order that God may send us a frightening punishment on account of our ungratefulness. After all, the God-fearing will by no means discard these signs, but will take it to heart as a warning of their merciful Father in heaven, will mend their lives and faithfully beg God that he may avert his wrath, including the well-deserved punishment on us, so that we may temporarily here and perpetually there live as his children. For it may God grant us his help. Amen. By Hans Glasser, Letter Painter of Nuremberg. Pretty wild stuff, right? It makes sense that they would give something like this religious significance. People back then wouldn't have considered government drones or spacecraft from another star. But it begs the question, why here on Earth? Space is big, really big. So why would there be a battle here of all places? The picture clearly shows one of the UFOs crashed and burning on the ground. Was the wreckage found and stored somewhere? I can't find any mention of it. Even if it was found and stored somewhere, it was so long ago that it could easily be lost to time. Some people argue that the picture looks a lot like a sundog. A sundog is caused by ice crystals refracting sunlight. It looks super cool, and everyone should look it up when they get the chance. But a sundog alone doesn't even come close to explaining the description given. So maybe a sundog, ball lightning, sprites, and a few other things all happening at the same time? Other people suggest that fireworks caused the sighting. Sounds good, but if you pay attention to the description, you may notice that it doesn't describe any kind of firework. At least I never saw fireworks do that stuff. Probably my favorite, but least plausible theory is that a time slip showed a World War II aerial battle over the city. I don't seriously believe it, but man, what a fun idea. There was a major battle in Nuremberg in April 1945, but even if there wasn't, if a battle can slip in time, then why not in space? I think it's an interesting idea, especially because the descriptions could match fairly well with a battle between incoming bombers and escort fighters and aircraft defending the city. Don't ask me what the spear could be. Of course, it could be anything. It could just be a fanciful description or a complete fiction. 
Next up, in 1566, sightings that bear a slight resemblance to the Nuremberg occurred in Basel, Switzerland. Here's what happened. It happened in 1566 three times, on 27 and 28th of July and on August 7th against the sunrise and sunset. We saw strange shapes in the sky above Basel. During the year 1566, on the 27th of July, after the sun had shone warm on the clear, bright skies, and then around 9 p.m., it suddenly took a different shape and color. First, the sun lost all its radiance and luster, and it was no bigger than the full moon, and finally it seemed to weep tears of blood and the air behind went dark, and he was seen by all the people of the city and countryside, in much the same way also the moon, which has already been almost full and has shone through the night, assuming an almost blood-red color in the sky. The next day, Sunday, the sun rose at about six o'clock and slept, with the same appearance it had when it was lying before. He lit the houses, streets, and around as if everything was blood-red and fiery. At the dawn of August 7, we saw large black spheres coming and going with great speed and precipitation before the sun and chattered as if they led a fight. Many of them were fiery red and soon crumbled and then extinguished. Could this sighting share anything with the previous one? This one sounds a lot like some celestial or atmospheric event, but what? Perhaps something so rare that it has only been witnessed a handful of times in our history? Maybe some sort of really exotic solar flare burst that affected our atmosphere and caused plasma events of some kind. That might explain the spheres floating around and appearing to fight with each other. Nobody knows for sure. These sightings could be anything. Okay, it's time to go back. Way back. In 76 BC, Pliny the Elder recorded a UFO sighting in his book on natural history. A spark was seen to fall from a star and grow as it approached the earth, and after it became as large as the moon, light began to shine as on a cloudy day. Then, when the object was moving back to the sky, it changed into a torch. This is recorded only once. The proconsul Solanus and his retinue saw it, in the consulship of Gnaeus Octavius and Gaius Scribonius. Weird, right? It's not clear if he uses the moon for size, or if he meant it was also circular. Circular like a flying saucer? It's fun to imagine that this account describes some sort of craft. But it doesn't specifically mention a craft, so we have to consider that the account may describe some sort of natural phenomenon. It was common at the time to use words like spark to refer to shooting stars. The event described could have been a fireball-type meteor. But, do meteors ever appear as big as the moon? Also, the description seems to imply that the object came down and then went back up. Meteors don't do this. Unfortunately, the description is too vague to really make any conclusions. Two years later, a Roman army led by Lucullus was facing off against the army of King Mithridates VI of Pontus. With no apparent change of weather, but all on a sudden, the sky burst asunder, and a huge flame-like body was seen to fall between the two armies. In shape, it was most like a wine jar, and in color, like molten silver. Both sides were astonished at the sight, and separated. This marvel, as they say, occurred in Phrygia, at a place called Autreae. 
The tempting and obvious conclusion is a meteor, but pay attention to the description. The object didn't just appear. Instead, the sky burst asunder. What would that even look like? The huge object fell between the armies. A meteor usually streaks around in the sky. This object didn't streak up there between the armies, but fell. The object wasn't described to be the size of a wine jar, but only similar in shape. A modern example is how some UFOs are described as football-shaped. The witness obviously isn't reporting a football. But most interesting is the color, molten silver. Hardly anything in nature looks like this. Not meteors, not stars, or even lightning. Just like the last sighting, there really isn't much to go on here. It could be some rare and exotic atmospheric thing. It could be a fictional account of divine intervention. Okay, now let's fast forward to the late 1800s for our last UFO sighting, Mystery Airships. This was actually a series of sightings that deserves its own episode, but let's just do a condensed version here. Sightings of mysterious airships started all around the world in the 1800s, but the most famous wave of sightings began in Northern California in 1896. Witnesses reported slow-moving lights that looked like locomotive headlamps. Other people reported faster-moving lights. The sightings were at night, but soon people began reporting cigar-shaped objects during the day. Some reported humanoid occupants. Many people suspected some sort of secret aircraft test, while others worried about visitors from Mars. The most popular theory seemed to be that Thomas Edison was behind the ships but he released a statement denying any involvement. We now know that there were a few test vehicles at the time that could be described as dirigibles or blimps, but none of these would have been capable of performing as the witnesses described. Another possible explanation is that the newspapers of the time often printed fake stories for entertainment, and readers would have known that the story was fake. This is generally called yellow journalism. Perhaps the most interesting account from this wave of sightings comes from Colonel H.G. Shaw. While driving his buggy through the countryside, he witnessed a spaceship on the ground. It was metallic and had a rudder and pointed ends. He estimated it at 150 feet. Three slender, seven-foot-tall aliens approached Shaw from the aircraft, making a strange, warbling noise. These creatures attempted to abduct Shaw, but were not strong enough to force him onto their craft. They then returned to their ship and flew away. Shaw thought that they were Martians attempting to abduct him for unknown but probably sinister purposes. This is the first published account of alien abduction. Many of the accounts from this wave seem a little on the fictional side. Many of them describe pilots yelling things at each other or nearby people, or landing and talking to witnesses about things like machine guns. Some witness statements are known to be false. For example, Alexander Hamilton of Leroy, Kansas, reported that on April 19, 1897, that his son, a tenant, and himself all saw an airship hovering over his cattle pen. They saw a red cable from the airship lasso a cow and entangling a nearby fence. Hamilton attempted to free the cow but was unable to do so. Instead, he cut part of the fence and watched in amazement as the ship and cow flew off. This was considered by some to be the first example of cattle mutilation, but UFO researcher Jerome Clark uncovered the fact 
that the story was invented to win a Liars Club competition. The sightings in the Pacific Northwest during the late 90s weren't the only reports of airships. They were seen on the east coast of the USA, Europe, New Zealand, and Chile, among other places. Many of these sightings seem remarkable, but are rarely discussed these days. Jerome Clark, the researcher previously mentioned, offers his opinion. Any attempt to uncover the truth about the late 19th century airship scare comes up against some unhappy realities. Newspaper coverage was unreliable, no independent investigators, or airshipologists, spoke directly with alleged witnesses or attempted to verify or debunk their testimony, and with the single unsatisfactory exception, no eyewitness was ever interviewed even in the 1950s when some were presumably still living. And now to wrap it all up, let's bring it back to modern days. You can't talk UFOs nowadays without talking about the Tic Tacs. It's everywhere. You could say it's a modern Roswell. There seem to be really credible sightings, and nobody knows for sure what's going on. Well, I have a theory. Astronomers have already found countless exoplanets. Well, maybe you could count them, but I can't. And among those, many of them are in the so-called Goldilocks zone. They're finding more and more all the time. So it's only a matter of time until we detect life on another planet. The government is probably pretty concerned about the disruption this may cause. Some people's belief systems might be completely shattered by the idea that there's life somewhere else out there. Possibly intelligent life. Possibly life more intelligent than us. Or maybe just some trees. Who knows? But my theory is that this Tic Tac stuff and a lot of other news articles I've been seeing lately is part of a soft disclosure. But the reason that they're doing soft disclosure is not because they actually care whether or not people know about aliens or telling the truth. The government doesn't care at all about providing the truth to the people. What they care about is making sure that people don't flip out. The government will never tell the truth about UFOs. Whether or not they're out there, whether aliens are visiting, if they do mention aliens, if they do talk about aliens, then they have some other ulterior motive, some other purpose. It's not to inform the people. They don't really care about that. I think either they already have found an exoplanet with alien life, or the top scientists have warned the government that they are very likely to find it soon. So the soft disclosure agenda is not to inform anybody, but rather to soften the blow when it finally lands. Before I wrap it up, it's time to introduce a new segment on the ACP show. Let's call it Reviews. I'll come up with a better name some other time. But basically, I want to have short reviews of movies, books, games, or anything I think people might want to know about that has something to do with anything weird. This week, I Am Mother, a post-apocalyptic movie on Netflix, starring Clara Rugard, Hilary Swank, and Rose Byrne, and a few others. This one is hard to even talk about without any spoilers. Basically, Clara Rugard, who plays daughter, is raised by a robot, mother, voiced by Rose Byrne. It would seem that most everyone is dead from some unknown catastrophe. And that's all I can say about the plot without spoiling it. But I can say that the acting was good. There's really only three characters in the whole movie, and they all gave excellent performances. 
Visually, the movie looks great. They didn't have a summer blockbuster budget, but it looks pretty darn good. The pace of the film is pretty slow, in a good way. It's not an action movie, but a psychological thriller. Kind of. Paying attention to details is important, otherwise you might be a bit confused at the end of the movie. The writing is good and creates an internally consistent universe. Things that happen might not make sense out of context, but fit into the bigger picture. And one of the best things is that there was no text at the beginning explaining everything. Instead, the writers used context and well-written dialogue to flesh out the story's world. The sound design and editing were good, except that the dialogue was way too quiet. But that goes pretty much for every movie nowadays. The reason for this, I suspect, is that having the bass level lower allows for louder explosions and such, but makes it hard to watch when your kids are trying to sleep in the other room. After finishing the movie, I wanted to watch it again. A few days later, some friends came over and I put it on for them. Right when the movie ended, they all said they wanted to see it again too. The second time around, I noticed things I didn't the first time. Anyway, I highly recommend it. It was an excellent movie. One of the best I've seen recently. Alright, to wrap it all up, history holds many tales of strange things. These stories are difficult to evaluate for two reasons. First, it is difficult or impossible to investigate or research things that happened so long ago. For many of these old sightings, we only have a bit of witness testimony to go on. Second, the language and culture were very different even just a hundred years ago. So much that a story in a newspaper that might have been an obvious fabrication to people back then might seem like a real story to us. Even in the cases of legitimate sightings, people would have described object based on what they knew. Flying saucers might have been chariots. Meteors would have been sparks. It is impossible to really know what caused many of these sightings, if they were hoaxes or tall tales, or genuine alien visitors. Even so, they are fascinating accounts worth hearing. If nothing else, they prove that people saw strange things in the skies well before 1947, and in fact have always seen strange things as far back as history was recorded. As always, I will end the episode with a quote, this one from Pliny the Elder. In these matters, the only certainty is that nothing is certain. Alright, thanks for listening.